Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Woo! How about that gospel, huh? I, and that was even the short version. Just kidding, that was a long version. Okay. We got to get you into Holy Week shape before, you know, it's like you, you got those really long gospel readings for Holy Week, all those readings for Easter Vigil. It's like liturgical calisthenics. We're getting you into shape. All right. Deacon, you did a good job. That was a lot of reading. All right. All right. So let's dive in. So at, you heard me say at the very beginning of Mass that uh, today, the fourth Sunday of Lent, is the second scrutiny, right? The second scrutiny for, for Robert, our elect, who is going to become Catholic baptized this Easter Vigil. And... Uh, the church invites us as we contemplate, uh, as we prepare for those ho- most holy of, holiest of days, the church invites us to contemplate particular scriptures, these three scrutiny weekends. So this being the second scrutiny that occurs on the fourth Sunday uh, of Lent, we have from John's Gospel the story of Jesus healing this man born blind. All right, so John's Gospel, a little biblical uh, background for us. John's Gospel, scholars agree, is kind of divided more or less into two main sections, two main books, we could call them. They call them the Book of Signs, the first chunk of the Gospel, then the Book of Glory, the second half of the, the Gospel. So the Book of Signs, you have this succession of signs where you'll hear um, John narrate and say, this was the first sign or the second sign, right? You've got water turned into wine, you've got the healing of the official son, you've got the healing of the paralytic, the multiplication of the loaves that feeds the 5,000. You've got this healing, this sign, the healing of the man born blind, and you've got the raising of Lazarus. So these, all these signs, all these signs, Simeon in the Greek, all right? So John, as a literary master, what he's doing in and through these signs, right? You have to remember, too, that John was, uh, his gospel was written last. John was the one who kind of survived longest out of the apostles. He had the greatest amount of time to kind of sit and contemplate and let the, let the Holy Spirit distill the life of Jesus into the, I don't know, the nectar of his gospel. It was John who gives us that punchy, pithy phrase, God is love, right? So John in his gospel, he's giving us these signs that um, they're kind of like tableaus, they're icons, they're, they're so much more than just miracle stories. These episodes, they convey, they unveil, we could say, deeper realities of the Christian life, deeper realities of the church, in particular the sacraments. So, why this gospel? Why this story for the second scrutiny? What is it about? So, in a word, it's about baptism. It's about baptism, which maybe you got, maybe you didn't get, but it's about baptism. This man born blind, this healing of this blind man is an icon of what's going to happen to Robert when I waterboard him, I mean baptize him, at the Easter Vigil uh, in just a few days, right? When we baptize. It's an icon of what's going to happen to you, Robert. It's an icon of what happened to all of us when we were baptized, right? And when you bring your little ones to be baptized, this is an icon, an allegory of what has happened to us, what will happen to us. How so? In what way can we say that? Well, we are all this blind man. Every single one of us. This is the state of our soul upon entering into this fallen world. We are all blind, so to speak, from birth. Over and over again, Jesus speaks about the problem not just of our physical sight, he speaks about the problem of our spiritual sight, that we don't see reality as we were meant to, right? What's his great critique? He says they look 
but they do not see. And his great invitation to the apostles of John the Baptist when they come and follow him is come and become one who sees. There's a problem with our sight. Original sin has robbed us of vision, right? And again, just like this man, it's not our personal fault. Was he blind because of his sins or is he blind because of his parents' sins? No. Are we blinded by original sin by our own personal fault or the fault of our parents? No. But you go back and back and back all the way to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, that's their fault. And it's the fault of all of humanity, right? That's who Adam is. Adam and Eve, they, like, in some ways, they are representative of all of humanity. All of our sins are in them, right? Back to that episode in Genesis 3. We made it two whole chapters as humans, human beings in the story where we're still living in grace. Two whole chapters, one and two, right? And then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and the whole thing just goes to, you know, you know. All right, so... Genesis chapter 3, the Lord says, Of the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You shall surely die. That's what God said to Adam and Eve. And yet, right, tempted by the serpent, they reach for the fruit, they grasp, because the serpent comes along and says, basically suggesting a lie, suggesting that God isn't who you think he is. He's not this good and benevolent father you think he is. He's withholding from you. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want your flourishing. He doesn't want your joy. So in fear, they grasp because of this rivalrous relationship that bubbles up in their heart. They grasp. They eat of it. And then Scripture says, Genesis right there, it says, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. And immediately, they hide themselves. They hide themselves. So this begs the question, their eyes are opened. To what? To what? Did they gain new insight? Did they gain a new depth of perception? No. They lost vision, actually. Right? They, their eyes were open to shame. Their eyes were open to this new experience, this experience of seeing the world not as God intended them to see it. So in effect, like, they were blinded. They were blinded because in that moment, they expired. Expired. They breathed out. That's what that word literally means, to expire, is to breathe out. What do they breathe out? Not just natural human life, they breathed out the divine life, which God said, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. You will breathe out. They breathed out the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, right? The, whole, the original sin is the absence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Deprived of the Holy, we can think of it this way, deprived of the Holy Spirit, we have become depraved. Like that's the source of, the, of our depravity is our deprivation. We all have become humanity because of the fall. We are all like people driving around on flat tires, deflated tires. You ever drive around a car with a deflated tire, a real flat tire, anybody? Like you can't do it very well, right? Imagine if everybody you ever knew had a car with flat tires. If everybody drove around on flat tires, you'd probably think, I guess this is normal, <laughs> but that's not normal, right? Jesus came to reinflate our hearts, to reinflate the tires of our souls. There's an image for you. Jesus, he's pumping the tires of our hearts. All right. So this man's blindness is an icon of the unbaptized, right? And Jesus says that it was to do the works of God that God allowed this blindness. It was to do the works of God, for the works of God to be man- made manifest, He's saying, I'm about to do something. I'm about to do a work. That's what, he's, that's what he's getting at. Because baptism is a work of God. It's a work of God. Like, it's not something that we do for God. It's not something that, um, 
you know, that like, okay, this is what we want for ourselves or for our infants or Robert, like you're stepping forward, this is something I want. Yes, it is, but principally and primarily, baptism is a work that God is doing. It's something that he's doing. For our Protestant brothers and sisters, sacraments, if they have a regard for sacraments, sacraments are the things that we do, things that we do to get to God, right? We come forward, we take communion. We come forward, we decide to get baptized. I'm connecting myself to God through this ritual gesture. To the Catholic way of thinking, though, to the Catholic imagination, the sacramental worldview, sacraments are they're a divine act done from God. They're, it's a divine act upon you. It's a divine act upon you. Baptism is something that God does to you. God infuses us with the Holy Spirit through baptism, right? We can think of it this way. Sacraments are the ladders that God has created for himself to reach us, to haul us up to himself. It's how he reaches us, right? It's an act that he's doing upon us. So baptism, it's this experience of illumination, right? It's an experience of Jesus who calls himself the light of the world. I come into the world, he says, as the light of the world. John the Baptist, I've come to testify to the light, right? The works done in darkness, the works done in light. Jesus, through baptism, is saying, I've come to illuminate your soul. That's why a baptism, especially at the Easter Vigil. There's this interplay between darkness and light. The whole night will start in utter darkness, except for one flame that gets lit, the paschal fire, which lights the paschal candle, the symbol of Christ, his victory over sin and death, darkness and hell. That light is brought into the darkness of the church and illumines the church as we spread the flame. And then, Robert, when you are baptized, you will be handed a candle. You will be handed a flame as a sign of Christ's illumination of you. Right? Just like every mom and dad, every baptism that your child has ever, the baptisms of your children, you receive a, pas- a, a baptismal candle, right? It's a sign of Christ illuminating us. Listen to this. This is from the Catechism, paragraph 1216. Just so you know, I'm not making it up, all right? All right. This bath is called enlightenment because those who receive this instruction are enlightened in their new understanding, becoming... Ca- the, 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 yeah, the... the Let me just start from the top. This bath is called enlightenment because those who receive this instruction are enlightened in their understanding. That's what we were doing throughout this entire year through through the Becoming Catholic series, right? Soaking in this worldview, understanding who we are, all of that stuff. Having received in baptism the word, the true light that enlightens every man, the person baptized has been enlightened. He becomes, he or she becomes a son of light. Indeed, the Catechism says... He becomes light himself. He becomes light himself. Okay, so perhaps you're tracking with me so far. I hope so. This whole story is pointing to baptism, right? Blindness, original sin, enlightenment. Okay, but perhaps you're thinking, okay, but what in the world, what in the world's going on with this like mud, clay, spit in the eye business? Was anybody thinking that maybe? Okay, some of us. All right. Like, what is the deal with Jesus doing this? Why doesn't Jesus just go, and you are healed, right? Like, why doesn't he do that? Why does he spit into clay, make this muddy saliva paste, and put it in this guy's eyes? All right, to understand this, we need a little early first century Jewish background to really grasp what Jesus is doing, the significance of this gesture. Here's the wild thing, and it really wasn't until the 1940s when we discovered when 
these Bedouin shepherd kids discovered these scrolls hidden in a cave in a region called Qumran, did we actually have a real window into first century Judaism, right? If you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls are this library, a collection of scrolls, a library preserved in these terracotta jars, hidden in caves, that were from this all-male Jewish monastic community that predated Jesus by about a century, right? And these scrolls, this unbelievably preserved library, gives us a window into the worldview, the, the theology, the thinking, the categories of first century Judaism. Right? This is significant because at the end of one of the primary scrolls, the scroll that's it's called the community rule, there's this figure who's writing. He's called the teacher of righteousness. And this teacher of righteousness, he ends this reflection with this long prayer where he's talking about, he's expressing our utter lowliness as creatures before God. This is what he says. What can man, born of woman, be reckoned before you, O God? Kneaded from dust, his body is but the bread of worms. He is so much spit, mere nipped off clay, and for clay his longing. Do you hear right there? Do you hear like, do you hear in these words, these parallels, right? Kneaded from dust, clay and spit. What is this teacher of righteousness, this early first century monastic Jewish man talking about? Where does he get this whole business about man being spit? Like the clay and spit of God, where does he get this? It comes from Genesis. It comes in particular from Genesis 2, the creation of man, right? Where Adam says, is kneaded together, molded together out of dust in the Hebrew. He's molded together out of dust. But here's the problem. If you ever try and like, like need to mold something together out of dust, how does that work too well? Good or bad? Bad. It doesn't work too well to try and mold something together with dust. What do you need to mold something together with dust? What do you need? Spit. Moisture. You need something to hold the dust together. There was this incredible tradition in early Judaism that said that God spit into the dust. He spits into the dust, and from that makes this concoction. He molds together Adam, forms the man, right? So over and over again, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you hear this reference to the human person as called the spittle of God or the spit of God. How about that for an image, right? You feel pretty good about yourself, don't you, right now, right? The spittle of God. He doesn't say the lugi of God, by the way. Okay, so it's just the spit of God, right? There's these four times over and again. All right, so what Jesus is doing, to look at this scene through first century Jewish lenses, what is Jesus doing? If you're reading this as a Jew, watching this as a Jew, what do you see there is a recreation scene, a recreation scene. He's repeating the actions of God. Right? He's repeating the actions of God who in the beginning of human history formed man out of dust and spit and clay. Right? He's now doing this to this man's eyes. He's regenerating him. Like, is it any wonder that like, with this second scrutiny that the church pairs this reading with Paul from the, Paul's letter to the, the Ephesians where he says, brothers and sisters, you were once in darkness. So there's an old you. And he says, but now you are in the light. There's a new you, right? There's an old you and a new you. Right? Baptism is the means by which we are grafted onto Jesus, and it affects this monumental change. Like, Robert, you will be so changed when I drown you in baptism with the pitcher. You're going to be so soaked. It's going to be so great. But the other thing about this, though, is you're going to still look the same. Right? Baptism, you are so changed, and at the same time, you are the same person, which is what we see in this gospel. 
right? You have these people saying to this guy, his neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar, they said, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said it is, but others said, no, he just looks like him. And he said, I am, right? In other words, are you the guy who used to sit and beg and be blind, or are you someone else entirely? Yes, is his response. Notice, notice, I'm going to end with this. Notice his response, though. He, he, he responds by saying, I am, which in the Greek is ego eimi. There's only one other person in the gospel, or in the whole Bible, who uses that word, ego eimi, and that's God. That's Yahweh in the Old Testament. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's the divine I am, right? Remember Moses to the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? Who is the God who sends me? I am who I am, right? I am. So through baptism, our I, your I, Robert, your personal subjectivity is united to Jesus. and You receive this new identity. And this is what I find so amazing and so beautiful about this gospel, that Jesus doesn't just simply wave his hand over us. He wants this incredible closeness. As Catholics, it's just so woven into our sacraments that we will literally not just look and behold the goodness of God, but we will taste and see the goodness of God. It'll be smeared onto your eyes. It will be pressed into your body, placed upon your tongue. The smells, the bells, your entire body will taste and see and perceive the goodness of God. It's unbelievable and so beautiful. Amen.